Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, Aaron is still waiting to sit on his patio. We track the footsteps of wolves from 19th century Alberta to medieval cities and then back to Fargo. And we tame our gaming sides by killing some zombies. really good friend actually uh, from Trent um, so kind of someone I really connected with at, at university and in residence listened to the show uh, and I think you know he's uh, he always cuts to the bone so yeah. like he's you know he doesn't he doesn't really mince words with anything and that's something I really really actually quite like about him but uh, so he said he really liked the show but well, that's he, good. he also always has kind of his own take and I don't think it's so much a take that's contra but it's okay it's a different one. So like just, he had his opinions about what we talked about. He had his opinions about what we talked about, for sure. Yeah. So what were they? Well, um, so I think his, his point was that he would sort of agree, and this is kind of, I kind of like his language on this, but in terms of ownership, it might be the case that, yeah, millennials are, are more or less a, a return to a peasant kind of class, right? That they don't. Like we, we don't own We don't stuff? own very much, comparatively. Okay. Well, I, I don't think we own junk. Oh, no, I wouldn't say we own junk either. I just don't think he just says, like, if you want to compare the buying power of millennials to their baby boomer generation parents, then, yeah, we don't we don't have as much stuff. That's kind of his point. But his, his kind of element on this was that, like, the fetishization of survival is actually more to do with kind of our own myth, right? It's a myth about trying to recover some sort of Homeric kind of figure who is actually able to take control of the elements and... Okay. Had all this autonomy. Okay. I, I might be able to get behind that. I get behind I think he's, I think we're kind of on the same page in terms of the fact that there is something going on with autonomy, right? And yeah. There's definitely a lack of it. Yeah. And if there's a lack of something, then there's this desire to have these situations where it can be exerted. And so I was even hearing on the radio, we didn't mention it, it would have been perfect last week, was this television show about being alone in the oh. wilderness. They, it's, uh, it's the ultimate survival show, apparently. Where really? It's Canadian. And, and they, they like stick some poor schmuck out in the, <laughs> in the field and like survive? They, they stick, I think, several poor schmucks out in the field oh, to survive. Boy. And this year is different, apparently. I haven't seen the other years. It's on History Channel. But this year they actually have teams, but they're separated by huge distances. So part of the, part of the initiative is to find your partner. Oh. Who's also stranded in the, in the woods. Oh, that just sounds awkward for everyone. It sounds terrible. And the, uh, the big glamour i guess or the the thing that makes it different is that there's no camera crews so it's like gopros it i think it's done with drones drones i think drones play a big part drones and micro sensors so you've got this really bizarre intersection between the heightened capacity of the surveillance state that is okay i gotta (laughs) check that out and the desire for individual autonomy right like isn't that bizarre i gotta check that out oh yeah that's just weird yeah it's very odd yeah anyway um since the last time we saw each other um how have you been? What's uh, what's new in the world of Aaron? Yeah, no, my week my week's been okay, I guess. Uh, you know, it's uh, nine to five is yeah. is a bit of an adjustment. Um, I suppose I my wife and I we had uh, an encounter with the with the digital economy. The digital economy. Yeah, and I think the big takeaway of the digital economy is just its interoperability. That'll be the will be the drag. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. So your, your face kind of look like you're looking at me like this isn't a good thing that happened. No, well, it's just, it's a frustrating thing. It's no one's, okay. it's not the end of the world. It's just frustrating. So, okay. um, as you, as you probably know, uh, my, my wife and I are expecting the end of August. Yay. Which is exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. So this podcast, uh, has done a couple things. It's, it's brought the East and the West together. Cause you're, you're from, uh, BC. Yeah. Matt's from BC. Now Matt got pregnant Well, his wife, but you know, yeah, got pregnant. yeah right. he's on the podcast and now you're telling me that your wife is pregnant. Yeah. Well, has, those, has been. Yeah. So between the two of us, you'll probably have one person who's whole. If that makes sense. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> so and even then, that's a bit of a stretch. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So it just seems like everyone is, uh, uh, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, so one thing we really wanted to get was some patio furniture. So we could sit down. Okay. That's, uh, well, that's... That's very important as you become, you know, pregnant. To be, to, to, to be able to sit. To be able yeah, to sit down. Sure. And outside. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's very nice. Um, and I don't know if you know this, probably, maybe you do, um, Home Depot is trying to push its... Yeah. It's online ordering system. Very much, yeah. Right? So is Lowe's. So they're all trying to yeah. move to this model because this is the new digital model of the 21st century. Sure, yeah. But there are also still large corporations with the bottom line, right? Yes. Which yeah. means that they have interesting behaviors. So we decided we we'd, we would go ahead and we would be the pioneers and help help Home Depot start off its online business. How... how uh, uh adventurous of you yes well you know we're big risk takers yeah. as it turns out we actually are i suppose okay um so we ordered it back in may in may no furniture hasn't arrived hasn't come what the f- and so we're like okay well, you know there's a strict there's a deadline on the web on the website is the you know how long you can expect to wait for your for your patio furniture and is it that the, long the deadline exceeded we were way over didn't okay. come so okay. we we basically i say we my wife you know she called them up and said got hey, on the horn hey, yeah, hey what's up Where's, where's our patio furniture? Yeah. And I guess they lost the digital ticket or something. So the warehouse had no record of, of our order. So huh. they had to refine the ticket. Okay. But as, so, and they were supposed to call us again this week to arrange a time to come. Oh so boy. they found the ticket, but it turns out the ticket, something had to be done with the ticket which made no sense over the phone, but would mean that there wasn't, there's going to be another phone call this week. And really, this isn't your problem. This isn't our problem. No, we just, like we just you want somewhere just, to sit. Just yeah. Get my pregnant wife a fucking chair. That basically was, yeah, that's the subtext of my conversation. We're like, come on, please just yeah. get get the chair. Um, so uh, what ended up happening, though, was so this afternoon, actually, I spent about two and a half hours on the phone. Oh, boy. And through like this, these layers of sort of communications, it turns out that what Home Depot has done is they have kind of um, offshored or I guess out, sorry, not offshored, outsourced their, uh, the delivery model to this company called Same Day Delivery, which becomes very <laughs> ironic. very ironic. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was quite, yes. Um, and that <laughs> is the best part. Same Day Delivery has outsourced their delivery. No. Yeah. So there's like three tiers of people that you have oh, to go through no. to get, to get this stuff. So oh. the long story short is I went down to the physical store yeah. in the end and said, can Pretty- you, can I get some furniture here and just, you know, take it back. And they're like, well, we don't have any here, but our other store does. But the best part is they couldn't even cancel our order no. in the store oh, boy. because the systems don't speak to each other. Uh. So this is, this is this point, this interoperability. So you've bought a set of furniture now. No, I mean. You we, couldn't even do that. You couldn't even do that. Oh, so I don't know. I think I'm going to sort it out this weekend because it's, 
it's kind of important that I, yeah. I get this result. And like this stuff isn't cheap. No, well, it's just it. I mean, it's, uh, and that was kind of a big choice on our part because we could have easily just trolled Kijiji or yep. Craigslist or yep. had some patio furniture, but we decided we wanted to do the proper thing for the economy, the good thing for the economy and go out and consume new products, right? Which is yeah. what, you're, what you're supposed to do. Well, you've, you've injected the money into the economy. That part you did right. That's true. Actually, I've, I've done quite well. I've, for the, for, in terms of capitalism, I've, I've given away money and I haven't yes. had anything back. So Perfect. that's kind of the, that's the desirable way <laughs> that model works. Uh, yeah. Uh, ordering stuff online. Mel and I have tons of stories about ordering stuff online and it not working or being lost or the most recent one uh, was we, for some reason, put in uh, the wrong address. So uh-huh. we ordered something, uh, noticed that it was the wrong address uh, on the account, uh, but after the order had been finalized. Uh, but th- so the, the product, the, like the stuff that we ordered were, was sitting in a warehouse in BC and we caught the error before it had even left the warehouse. So it's not on a delivery truck. The company said, no, no, it's not up to us. Uh, it's up to the shipping company. Contact them. The shipping, shipping company said, we can't do anything about it. It needs to be the seller. Okay, call the seller, the company. No, okay. What we're going to do is we're going to ship it out, There's but some... to the wrong address. Yes. And then we're going to send a, a, a courier to go pick it up, to send it back to the warehouse, and then we'll refund you, and then you can order the product again with a new address. So it's it, the stuff traveled from BC uh, to Quebec, yeah. from Quebec back to BC, and then from BC back to our, our house here. Why would they possibly do that? It, it's the most stupid thing I've ever heard of. That must have cost them most of their profit on the thing that you bought. Uh, yeah, probably more. That's crazy. Yeah. Not to mention like the whole low carbon economy. Dream. Oh yeah, but you know, we're really environmentalists about oh, all this, right? And like, you know, you know, at some point Mel said, well, just don't ship it all the way across country again. Just bring it to the local... Uh, like it was UPS who was handling yeah. the shipping, just bring it to the local UPS shop and I'll go get it there. But I can't go to someone's house to get it. Like, that's just like, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Yeah, no, like, first that. of all, that's that would, that, like that weird, weird and dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know who's going to answer the door, but just send it to the UPS shop and I'll go get it. I don't mind like driving, you know, half yeah. an hour to go get it, but I, nope, send it back. Really weird. Huh. Really weird. That's what Anyway, yeah. Anyway, speaking about digital economies and digital fidgets, uh, this is Semi Intellectual Musings. I am uh, your regular co-host, Philip Primo, and I am joined by special co-host uh, Aaron Henry. Uh, Aaron is back with us uh, for another episode in his mini series. Uh, really excited to have him on. Uh, the show Semi Intellectual Musings is about social sciences, humanities, and arts. We put the published world in conversation with your everyday life and your everyday world. Uh, we do it through book reviews. We do it through our honest opinions about stuff. And um, Aaron has set up a mini-series for us uh, that looks at the published world, but also kind of beyond, right? Uh, we got into it a bit last time around the notions of survival um, millennial conditions, m- millennial anxieties. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the wolf. Yeah, that's that's the idea. Um, the wolf. Uh, sure. And so, I guess um, the way that I'm sort of hoping that this will work, our sort of procedure is, I'd like to talk about the wolf uh, broadly in relationship to the the formation of states. Yeah. But also, uh, and the kind of the more direct tie here is the relation of the wolf to long-standing, but different in different times. Uh, sorry, I'm going to rephrase this. Uh, the relation to the wolf in the way in which we talk about criminality. 
the wolf crime, the state. You have a lot in for us. Um, I'm going to tell everyone how they can get a hold of us first, uh, because we'd love to hear some comments from you. We'd love to hear more comments from people uh, who've listened to the last show with Aaron. Uh, how you can do that is on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. You can email us on semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, your podcatcher of choice. Please send us some readings, send us some reviews, send us your comments, questions, concerns, and considerations. Um, But this is going to be an Aaron episode. I might have to sit back and kind of let him drive on this one. Okay. Well, please feel free to jump in whenever. All Um, right. All right. Well, let's get the show started. Hey everyone, welcome back. Uh, Philip Primo here, sitting in uh, with Aaron Henry. Aaron has another exciting episode for us. Uh, so to kick it off, he's going to bring in some material from some of the research that he's done and, and talk to us a little bit about the link between the notion or the imagery of the wolf and criminality. Uh, so uh, take, take it away, Aaron. Right. Uh, thanks so much for the intro. All right. Um, so I think uh, the discussion today is going to have to take a little bit of a meandering course. We, um, we love to meander on the show. Oh, good. Yeah. Me- meandering is a good thing. That's great. Um, so I guess the procedure here is I, I'd like this to talk about uh, the wolf. And the way that I'd like to do this is uh, both through historical examples um, and also through media. And in some respects, what I'm trying to show here is that there is an endurance of the wolf as, let's say, a way to organize our thoughts about criminality and organize our thoughts about danger. And also to, or sorry, not to, but as a key player in kind of the mobilization of different ways that states can react upon populations. Neat. So with all this kind of said, one thing that I think needs to be borne out from sort of the right at the gate here is that um, really in many respects, when we're talking about wolves, and you'll see this, that the wolf is a signifier for a type of character that is uh, ultimately detached, immoral, uh, and very much outside the social norms and customs. The thing that's fascinating about this just from the outset that I think is kind of important to notice is that we're not actually speaking about any type of animal that really exists, right? This is actually shows us that the way that we talk about wolves socially as a type, as a form of creature that's sort of outside the law or threatens others, uh, is actually very different from what wolves actually are, right? Yeah, so, because like the actual wolf that lives out in the wilderness, like out in my backyard, live in like they live in packs. Right? Just it. Wolves are very much a social animal. They need to live together basically to understand where they belong in sort of a social order. They yeah. communicate quite well. They hunt together. They are actually a very cohesive social group, right? As, as an animal. But uh, some of the stuff that you're going to talk to us about uh, doesn't really use that sort of. Uh, notion. No, we'll see that actually the way that the wolf functions in criminal criminal, criminal thought uh, is actually very much as a, as a marker for the other. Um, mm. And so this, I think, is an important point, is that actually at the basis of the construction of wolves, from the very outset, we're dealing with a notion of fable, 
to a certain right. degree. Yeah. Kind of like the mythos of the wolf. Exactly. So I'd actually like to start here with a historical example. And I think we could take it actually as a, a type of almost founding fable in Canadian law. Okay. Where is it from? Where is it from? So this is actually a case file from my postdoctoral research. Neat. Uh, kind of give a hat tip to my uh, supervisor there on this, uh, George Pavlich. It's a, it was kind of through his help that we sort of, I kind of came around this file. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I met George uh, at a conference um, at U of A. Uh, I think it was uh, GP actually uh, invited me over to U of A uh, before you were there. Yeah. Yeah. You told me about yeah, this. Yeah. And it was around, uh, I want to say confessions. Was it, con- was he working on confessions or... Yeah, I mean, confession was a big component of kind of this project, but ultimately, it was, yeah, it was criminalization and how to, it wasn't so much confessions, it was confessions was part of it, but the broader project he was trying to work on was accusation. Accusation, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah, accuse. Just yeah. In, it, yeah really neat work in itself. Yeah. But anyways, this file came up, um, and it is it's a file that I'd kind of like to actually handle uh, with some care, and there's a whole range of ways to go in it, but ultimately, this is actually the first legal execution that takes place in what becomes Alberta. Oh, wow. This is the, so this is actually after the Northwest Mounted Police march west. This is actually the first execution that takes place. And I think it's incredibly, um, it's pivotal to realize that in the formation of Canadian, Canadian law in Western Canada, the first uh. subject to be killed was an Indigenous man. Yeah, that's kind of telling. Yeah. Uh, so by execution, uh, do you mean like a state... Uh, police or a state body uh, coming to a trial and then executing like a citizen or like in this case, an Aboriginal person? Is that kind of what you mean by execution? Yeah. So this was the case that um, there's a whole series of communications that ran through individuals. So the Northwest Mounted Police apprehended an individual, uh, I think with enough evidence compelled uh, that basically he had committed murder. Okay. Uh, I guess it's... uh, yeah, murder of his family, which is, has a very particular word. Like a homicide? It's not homicide. I think it's uh, it's called patricide, I think, when you murder your family. Oh, okay. Um, anyways, we could check that. Uh, but ultimately, the Northwest Mounted Police uh, catches him, and they catch him actually through the help of a priest, <laughs> which is interesting. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, the priest calls for the Northwest Mounted Police because he thinks something's up about this man after he returns from spring. From okay. spring, I guess, from winter camping. Uh, and the, what makes it sort of, I guess, a legal execution is a sense that uh, he has a trial. It is a trial. He has a jury. There was an effort to ensure that the jury was, you know, roughly of his peers. Of course, it was not, but they had someone on the jury who spoke Cree. Okay. Which is supposed so, to be. So it was a Cree individual. It was a Cree individual okay. who was being accused. And ultimately, that verdict went to the Secretary of State. So back into Ottawa. Wow. And Ottawa made it, agreed, and sent the, sent, the, sent the verdict back. He was held, I believe, for about nine months in a fort prison. Okay. And then he was hung. And the whole process of hanging him itself was this kind of bizarre process of acquiring, and this is an aside for a different, different story, but of, just, of acquiring the right expertise to hang somebody. So yeah. this is basically the Northwest Mounted Police didn't want to mess up the first hanging. And so there was all these calls made to colonial offices and people to provide the right expertise as to how, to, how much of a drop he should have and so right. on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, uh, and that's something that I think uh, Foucault talks a little bit about, right? Like the techniques and the, the sort of knowledge that goes into execution. 
Well, this is, this is again, this is an aside, and I think there's a there's a very rich literature to engage with on this, and a whole series of really bizarre examples. But basically, there is in the rise of the state and the rise of the state that kills a an effort to develop a whole series of measurements, um, procedures, and rituals that essentially dissociate the state from killing people. Yeah, right. It's right. kind of like science or it, whatever. It right? ceases to be violence, and the yeah, state simply yeah. carries out the law. Right. Basically, violence becomes law and right. law becomes neutral and immoral. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not Bob killing Joe. It's the state is yeah. carrying out yeah. his sentence. And you're right. That is a, like a fascinating kind of aside that we could probably do a whole hour on just that. Right. Um, but, but yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, 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 I forced the digression on, on that one. The meandering. So um, very quickly, and there's a whole bunch of ways you can come back to the story, but this is uh, ultimately a narrative that gets caught up in a certain Northwest Mounted Police's memoir. Okay. So his name is uh, Sergeant Bagley. He would have been very young at the time of essentially uh, this trial. He ends up retiring in Jasper. But what he's commenting on is he's actually commenting on the process of which uh, this individual, uh, he was a Cree guide, he's actually a Cree guide for the Hudson Bay Company first, uh, named K. Kai Sikuchin, which is roughly Swift Runner. Swift Runner? Swift Runner. Okay. Essentially, Bagley was involved in Swift Runner's case. And we're going to cut over a lot of these details to kind of get to this rather pivotal moment. But essentially, to accuse Swift Runner, and what Swift Runner was being accused of was actually murdering his family during a winter camping trip. Again, there's a whole bunch of series of other pieces of information that are interesting here in terms of that it was a, it was a year of famine. Uh, he'd been banished from essentially his fort and lost his job. And so he and his family actually went north to camp about 60 miles from, I think, Fort Fort Saskatchewan. Okay. Anyways, um, this trial takes place when he returns back in the spring by himself. Without his family. And he makes a claim that his family starved. Okay. And it's decided that the actual words of the priest are is that he looks too well fed to have starved. Oh, hold on. Too well fed, but yet they had starved. So he comes back by himself. Okay. And he's not fam. He's not malnourished. He right. looks fine. And the okay. priest's conclusion is that you say your family starved, but why is it that you look so well? Okay. So ultimately, um, he tells a story about what happens. The Northwest Mounted Police want to collaborate that story. So they ask him to take him back to where he camped so he could show them the bodies of, every, of his family who starved. Sure. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, well, they, he on the first day he resists. He takes them in different directions. He basically kind of tries to throw the throw them off the track. Is what they is how this is recorded by Bagley. Right. This is what Bagley okay. feels happens. Um, ultimately they end up drugging him. Oh. So they give him a concoction of whiskey and tobacco, and they make him drink it. And essentially, it kind of makes him very dazed and apparently docile. And once they've given this to him, he starts to lead them apparently in the right direction. And this is where our kind of matter comes to play is that they come to a kind of fork in the road or a fork in the pathway at least. And there's some fabric and some trees and they point that out that look, look over there, look at this. And apparently at this moment, Swift Runner rents his head back. And this is, these are the words of Bagley. Gave out a howl like a wolf. Okay, so they're walking in the woods. Uh, there's a little piece of fabric at a kind of crossroads, and he howls. He howls like a wolf, and the chief inspector, a guy named Gagon, looks over at him and says, we're getting warm. 
Huh. So, so they, okay. So, okay. First of all, okay. Let's just back, back that train up. So this is a, a young uh, Mountie in mm-hmm. his notebook uh, on the chase of an Aboriginal individual who mm-hmm. he thinks committed murder mm-hmm. of his family. They drug him. They bring him out to the woods. What are the actual chances that this guy howled? I would say this is, and this is the, but this is basically what we'd refer to as a moment of codification. The chance that okay. Well, what do you mean by codification? Well, this is this is the exact point. Is that essentially in a police report, you have this whole documentation, right? This is what Bagley's referring to. Is that essentially this gets written down in the police report that this individual acted in this very specific way, and there's a almost a need to make sense of it. What does it actually mean? What is what is this actual behavior? Right. And so the idea that he actually howled. Highly unlikely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, really what's happened is he's led them back to the camp where by his own hands or through the winter, his family has died. Right? So he, he might have been sad. Yeah. Right? It could have been like a little sob. It could have been a sob. It could have been just trying to hold back. It could have been a howl of rage. Right? It could have all, all these sort of he different things. He was drugged. Things. It could have been, you could know, have been not feeling well. So out of all these possible effects, right? All these different emotions that could have taken place. The, for Begley, it gets codified as a howl like a wolf. So our question is why, right? Like of all the possible ways you could classify and yeah. try to understand yeah. this, this outburst, you choose wolf. Yeah. yeah like uh, it wasn't like he howled like a bear, like nope. he didn't growl like a bear or uh, like a lion, like yeah, a lion, uh, like a possum. I don't know. Possums <laughs> make dangerous sounds, but you know, a wolverine perhaps. Uh, well, yeah, sure. Right. But so, yeah, it was a wolf. It was a wolf. Yeah. And so this is, and I guess this is back to this point of sort of codification is that you have this emotion, you have this outburst, and ultimately because of the apparatus of a of a you know looming police state, right? A state that basically has police powers. Is what I'd say by that. I don't mean that it was totalitarian necessarily. I'm saying yeah. that it has police at its disposal. Yeah. yeah. Is that you're able to collect all these small gestures, all these granular kind of interactions. And once you start doing that, you need a way to organize them. You do, yeah. Right, and so this becomes one way in which this this is organized. And there's these other ways in which different confessions made by Swift Runner after the fact you get picked up. For instance, he at one point says that whiskey made him like a wolf. And he probably said a whole bunch of other things as well, but that's one Mm. thing that gets lodged in the criminal discourse. Interesting. So why we're starting here is that there is actually this attempt to construct Swift Runner as a wolf-like figure. And it's actually, it's very interesting in terms of the media stories that follow this case also make reference to the same thing in the sense that they refer to him as a cutthroat. They refer to him as a wild beast outside civilization. They ultimately, this is playing obviously upon colonial discourses as well, but there's a whole effort to basically make this construction of a colonial process and as Swift Runner as this embodiment of essentially this wolf that needs to be cleared for civilization to lay seed. And the other, I think the other side of it is that in constructing him as a wolf, and I'm going to use the word labeling, but I think loosely it's kind of like codifying in a different way once he gets labeled as a wolf it allows him as an individual but also the social category that he represents the cree the aboriginal um the families who do go and camp during the winter and come back in the spring that whole kind of movement of people as banished or as outside of whatever colonial rule wanted uh civilized uh beings to to be right 
So yeah, here, uh, let me give you an example from some of the media actually from the time. So this is yeah, actually great. just a brief uh, excerpt from the Manitoba Free Press uh, on January 16th, uh, 1880. So it's just shortly after his execution. Um, essentially, Swift Runner, a Cree Indian who was guilty of murder and cannibalism, uh, was executed. It basically goes on to say that the territories in this area are infested by Indian cutthroats and by refugees who find it in their interest to keep clear of the sheriff and civilization, and the efforts of the police to drive or starve them out have never succeeded. Wow. So, so yeah, there's your banished. There's a, there's uh, a banished perfect. element. There's also a, an interesting parallel at the same time in terms of that, that language, drive out, right? Starve or drive out was yeah, actually the yeah. same words that were used to deal with wolves in the area. Oh, there's yeah. a whole process of actually purging wolves because they are challenging game. Which right. very challenging livestock. And right, so you've got the right. same notion of poisoning, starving, and killing. Right, yeah. So um, why we start, started here is that for me in kind of conducting this research, I thought that codification was very odd, that you'd sort of elect to try uh, to construct yeah. him as a wolf. Yeah. Uh, and then it became really apparent that actually the wolf has a very long history in criminal discourses and in discourses that are essentially pre-crime, right? So the things that become criminal but at the time aren't necessarily refer to that way. Hmm. So one of the kind of examples that I'd always sort of focused on and I found very bizarre was that in Italian city-states in kind of the 13th to 15th century, it was a very common practice uh, to banish people. That's not a surprise. That's actually simply the before there's a penal structure, basically we, we remove people from society through banishment. Yeah, you're no longer part of that... Um... City, city. Right? Yeah, they get they'd ex get exiled from the city, and they'd be yeah. sent to the countryside. Yeah, yeah. And one particular element, though, is that if you committed murder, and you were sent to the countryside, you were actually referred to as a wolf. But just for murder? For murder in particular. Wow. You were a wolf. And the thing that was very fascinating about it was that the way you were admitted back into a city for another crime, if you were exiled, was to come back with the head of a wolf. So as a wolf, you had to go kill a wolf. You had to hunt each other. Oh, that's just weird. Yeah. And basically, but this is this idea that basically banished individuals were known as wolves and that your entrance back into the city state was basically on the sovereign's pardon and you had to come back with the head of a wolf. Now, we're, so uh, wolves were uh, feared, uh, revered, uh, probably, again, because they're hunting livestock. Hunting livestock, uh, they probably, maybe they did actually pose, at least in people's minds, perception-wise, threats to people who are merchants and who are traveling between places. Right, yeah. Right? And ultimately, that again, is that co-entanglement that it basically the animal of the wolf and the criminal of the wolf for the traveler probably became one and the same. So you have a situation uh, where there's, I'm going to call it like a quasi-legal structure uh, that codifies um, actions that go against those sort of laws uh, as a wolf. And I think the parallel is that you have a quasi or like a very new legal structure in Alberta uh, and an instance, a case where that uh, legal structure codifies someone as a wolf, right? So it, like, is it, is it, is it the same, the, the same sort of thing that's happening? It's a really good question. Um, and I'm siding on that. I think that there's obviously some parallels, but there, there are some differences too. And so I think that the, one of the things that's quite remarkable and kind of that medieval setup is, yeah, this actually becomes very much entrenched into law so much so that in Anglo-Saxon law, 
so being practiced in England, actually, uh, you have the statement that to banish someone was to put the wolf's head on them. Interesting. So the relationship to banishment was incredibly tight. And again, if you think about banishment, who really in the medieval period, who does the banishing? Well, it's the sovereign. Right? The sovereign decides who's in and who's out. And so this, from the very beginning, I think, in many respects, in terms of our perceptions, uh, created a tie between the sovereign and the beast. Right? And uh, this is discussed by other academics, other scholars, uh, sort of social theory. But this nonetheless gives us this idea that the relationship between the sovereign and the beast is kind of one of both hunting, right? And this is the other point is that basically every manhunt, right, is actually as a hunt for a wolf. Yeah, right. They're kind of one and the same, right? Yep. And basically the role of the sovereign is to, basically, is to this day, and this sort of similarity, is to be able to actually initiate that hunt. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Where there's some differences is that uh, you're right, that I think that on the one hand, there was a logic here, uh, at least in uh, colonial Alberta, again, of, uh, of an outcast, right? An outcast from civilization, literally in kind of that Manitoba press, a refugee from law, from the yeah. sheriff and civilization. And that is a similar construction as an other who's, who's outside. But the thing that's kind of interesting is that the way that the Northwest Mounted Police remembered Swift Runner is they called him the last of Canada's cannibals. So, uh, okay. Now, now, I, yeah. So that's a very, so there's a number of things that are going on with that title, right? First of all, that for some, there, there was this previous order of people who were all cannibals is obviously a, a heavily colonial assumption that gets carried out in many different projects. Yeah. But the other thing that's really important there for the Northwest Mounted Police is that the Northwest Mounted Police didn't want to carry out a project of banishment. That wasn't in their interest. Their interest was a orderly penal structure. Right. They wanted command and control. They wanted to basically clear the land, right, to put up basically to allow for homesteaders to move in. Yeah. This required a very different project than banishment. Yeah. And I think that's actually why you have this character who appears, Swiffner essentially becomes this banished other, and it's supposed to be the last of, yeah. right? Because that's the other point, too. Whenever you make a claim to the last of something, you're implicitly ushering in a new order. It's a new order, exactly. Right. And uh, I know this because you've spoken uh, to me about it a little bit, uh, but the way that they say the last of the old cannibalism or the old way of cannibalizing, I think they're getting around to saying that, um, you know, Windigo no longer is a thing. Or if Windigo is a thing, uh, this orderly structure that we're putting in place will be able to, uh, you know, kind of annul it or we're, we're going to be able to quash it or we're going to be better equipped to deal with it. That's a really, it's an interesting, yeah, that's a very interesting direction. And I think that we might have to actually put, because I don't think listeners would be uh, familiar with this. I know I certainly wasn't when I heard about it, but the whole question of when to go psychosis. Yeah. So, um, Another aside, another meander, uh, give us like, uh, the short kind of, what is Wendigo? Right. And again, this is very difficult because it's a, it's a, it's actually an incredibly complicated answer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I'm going to give you the version that I think is the most direct and honest. And I hope that it's not taken as pushing aside another set of histories that are actually very important around Wendigo and that's indigenous stories of Wendigo. Yeah. And I don't yeah. want to malign those, but I, what I would like to say is that generally Wendigo psychosis was a disorder that largely became diagnosed and pushed forward by colonial agents. The idea ultimately was that Cree people in particular were biologically 
morally and racially susceptible to this thing called Wendigo psychosis. And Wendigo psychosis essentially meant that uh, under certain conditions, Cree people, and it was generally directed towards Cree people by colonial agents, uh, would become psychotic. And they would go mad and hunger for human flesh and, and basically eat their fellow tribes people, right? right? Eat their community. Now, the reality is that there is a there is an indigenous story about Wendigo, and it does yeah. roughly follow some of this, that there is actually this thing that once you have tasted human flesh, you become a monster. Of course, that's not all that remarkable. We have our own stories of Wendigo. Yeah. We call them zombies. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, so exactly. it's, not, it's not totally out of left field here. But what happened with the colonial kind of understanding of Wendigo is actually this fascinating point, and I think it goes back to, it touches upon a point in a different way, but it's the idea that actually we have never been modern. And why we've never been modern is what you actually see happening in the deployment of the Northwest Mounted Police, missionaries, and colonial doctors, medical staff, is the invention of a diagnosis. We actually yeah, become the greatest yeah. myth makers. Yeah. And the thing that's fascinating, so uh, Wendigo psychosis becomes linked to hereditary disorders. Uh, you can see it in terms of a lack of discipline is something else that we're told that happens. Um, we're also told that there is an issue, it gets linked to menstru menst menstruation, it gets linked to all these series of elements. It also becomes connected to, in some instances, and this is quite fascinating, you can spot early signs of Wendigo psychosis <laughs> in a community by right. people who are refusing to trade with you. Okay. Right? There's this whole series of a colonial surveillance around this concept, and I think what's absolutely, it's kind of, it, well, it's, it's just, it's, it's embarrassing and it's absurd, but Wendigo psychosis actually existed as a concept all the way into the 1980s. Hmm. I we, didn't know that. We thought it existed as something, that we thought there was something there. And obviously the language changed. It moved away from a lack of discipline. It moved away from sexual promiscuity. It moved away from all these other concepts. But there was still an idea that there was something perhaps could be discovered in nutrition habits, perhaps could be discovered in TB that would create this possibility for a for a mental, a culturally bound syndrome. Um, okay. I, I don't want to go too far down. No, we kind of have to leave it at because, that. Because uh, that is, you know, you've talked to me um, a little bit about it, uh, I guess, for the last two years. Um, I think maybe we should do an episode on this podcast about Wendigo. I think uh, maybe we should bring in Matt into that conversation, uh, have an anthropology sort of perspective on it. Could be interesting. Um, so we're going to footnote that one. Yeah. And I'm, I, I am going to bring us back a little bit uh, towards the story of the wolf. And uh, you left off at medieval discourses of banishment. Um, but when you're talking about our own myth of Wendigo being zombies, um, I, I, you know, I got thinking about how it seems to me like the imagery of the wolf or the imagery of that kind of uh, character that is disassociated from uh, the legal order operating perhaps on his own or in a pack um, doesn't seem to be banished anymore. It seems to be extremely in our face. It, like we see them, they're part of our culture, they're part of our society basically. So, you know, do you, what, what's your take on this? Yeah. Uh, is the wolf uh, still the banished figure that it was? Yeah. So that's, yeah. And I think this is, this is a really interesting cultural turn and it's sort of why this figure gets integrated into society in the way that it does, I think is a, kind of an open question, but I'd like to kind of, let's position this kind of this point of transformation. So I would say that the understanding of the wolf as a, 
a destructive force of civilization uh, lasts a very long time. And one site that you can actually still see it in, it's kind of very neatly articulated, is in Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. He has yes, a sort yeah. of a famous line, right, that ultimately, without the Leviathan to keep everybody in check, husbandry fails, art fails, manufacture fails, and man is a wolf to man. Man, man turns into wolf, yeah. Man is yeah. a wolf to man. And that idea, I think, uh, puts us in a position where essentially the wolf as this figure is still outside civilization. It's still something that attacks civilization. And as I think you're right, that there is some hints that there's attempts here to kind of functionally integrate a wolf-like character into our social structure. And just to put this point, to kind of carry on. So where does the wolf still kind of emerge? How does it still sort of play out? Well, one thing that kind of comes up is if you search for articles, uh, criminology articles, sort of ones that proclaim to be scientific criminology, criminology articles, you'll find that the psychopath is a wolf. Mm, uh, right. There's actually a title of a paper that basically says the psychopath is a wolf. And it's, wow. it's, it's, a, it's a discourse analysis of uh, different murderers describing their cases. And essentially psychopaths had a distinct speech pattern when they spoke about the crimes that they committed. And they were basically identified as uh, by the investigator. The investigator classified them as wolves. There's also the lone wolf theory. Right, right. I was just going to say, like we hear in popular media, like if you turn on CNN or Fox after some sort of rampage, uh, you're going to hear people being labeled, uh, he was a lone wolf, meaning right. he didn't have a pack. And this is, so that's one split in it. And then the other part of it too, is that there will be uh, certain types of crime are defined as uh, crimes carried out by wolves, essentially individuals who seek out soft targets. So versus spontaneous crimes, those who seek out soft targets are basically labeled as wolves. Now, okay. so so like um, opportunistic crimes are labeled as um, the offenders are wolves. If if it's it's not so it's uh, it's not just opportunistic. It's the fact that they have actively sought out soft targets. Right. So there's a hunt. There's a hunt. There's okay. a hunt component to it. Right. I get it now. So that's all kind of very interesting. And I think, but what I would, as your point kind of carries its way through, yes, there is at the same time, something happens somewhere along the line where, and it shouldn't really be all that surprising, but eventually there's a shift. And I'm going to largely try to sort of illustrate this shift more in media than I would in actual sort of, you know, firm examples. But there is a, a desire at least to integrate an asocial type into civilization. And that's where I'd probably put this, is that the way the wolf gets transferred in to civilization is something that's actually a productive force of civilization rather than an outsider keen to destroy it, is a desire to make a asocial, calculated thinker uh, a component part of civilization. Okay, uh, right away, cause, because I know you're going to talk about uh, some cultural references, some pop cult uh, references. Um, let me guess where you're going to start. Okay. If society is a productive force of someone who's asocial, but yet that person can also be productive, I'm thinking of some sort of show where the serial killer is like also a cop. <laughs> uh, there's yeah. probably a few of those, but uh, Dexter. Yeah. Okay, Dexter. Yeah, that's so it. Yeah. You're on. Yeah. So Dexter is Dexter is actually the probably the most clearest illustration of this idea. And we learn this throughout Dexter's history, right? Basically, throughout, as, a story, as, a, as a narrative progresses, we actually find out that Dexter's father is able to see Dexter for what he is. Yes. And yeah. they end up visiting, visiting a psychologist, and the psychologist ends up producing a regimen or a program to ultimately, what do they do? Well, they harness Dexter's 
murderous instinct. Yeah. And by harnessing it, they ultimately assume that that's going to be a, a social good, right? A social good will come from Dexter murderous instinct. So who would so, so was it the, the father and the psychologist who said, uh, oh yeah, you should go out and murder every once in a while? So in the story, this is the kind of, this is actually a very interesting part is that Dexter doesn't discover it's a psychologist till much later, right? He's trained by his father. Oh, his okay. His adopted or his father adopts him, his adopted father, uh, basically trains him how to kill people in a way that won't leave a trace because his father's also a police officer, right? So oh, how to escape geez. the law. Okay. Uh, and how ultimately though, to escape the law to serve justice, right? Is ultimately kind of the idea. So there's a code, right? A I code. think that's what there's he refers to. Yeah. He must follow a code. And in terms of that, he can only dispose of, kill other human beings who are bad, right? Who've committed serious crimes, who will do more social harm. Those are the ones that Dexter gets to pick off. So I'm going to uh, make a connection, but tell me if I'm completely wrong. Uh, but when you're talking about medieval discourses of banishment in Italian city-states, uh, one of the ways in which uh, those people could be brought back into a city was to bring uh, the head of a wolf. To make oneself productive. To make oneself productive. Now, in Dexter, you have a code that says you are a wolf, uh, but to be able to function, to be able to live in the society, uh, you must hunt other wolves. You will hunt other wolves. And ultimately what becomes the, the, the driving point of the show though, I think, or maybe not the driving point, but the thing that we realize and realize how Dexter is trying to be sort of integrated into a social structure is that when he ultimately meets the psychiatrist or psycholo psychologist, I can't, I'm not sure which one it was, um, who ultimately he sort of uh, figures this is mother, right? It's kind of uh, ultimate kind of mother figure. She, he actually learns that she has a theory. She has an evolutionary theory about social paths and psychopaths. Oh boy! And like uh, like Darwin, like it's it's a theory basically. Her theory that she advances is that such people are necessary to the social structure <laughs> because you need individuals who are ruthlessly calculated, who are able to essentially take emotion out of equations, and simply in sort of by being able to follow a code or ethos of self survival, keep others alive with them. Uh, are we are we we're still talking about Dexter? Yeah. Okay, because I'm pretty sure that that is a line um, out of another kind of great, great television series that I've talked about many times in this podcast. Could you guess, you guess try to... Is it possibly Fargo? It's uh, Fargo, of course. Right. That's and the, so again, we actually have, and this is where I was kind of hoping we'd go because I've kind of got a lot of analysis on, on the first season of Fargo in particular and the deployment of the wolf. So I don't know if listeners are familiar with Fargo the first season. I hope you are because it's a great, it's a great season. Highly recommended to go back and watch it. But um, this basically in the first season and it comes up in the second season and I've heard, and hopefully we can talk about that at some point too in the third season, but there's, oh, this, you better very, bet you it does. <laughs> there's this very active pursuit of constructing a character as a wolf. And so the character I'm thinking of is actually somebody by the name of Lauren Marvolo. Now, just keep this in mind, too, as we kind of run through. The, the name Lauren Marvolo can actually be translated to uh, evil without origin, which is interesting in itself. But we're actually introduced to Marvolo on the very first scene of the show uh, on a dark highway. He's driving down uh, through these very sort of austere little country roads, and you can hear that something's in his trunk, thumping away, and suddenly a whole herd of deer run across the street and he hits one and goes off the road. The trunk opens up 
and uh, a man runs across the field. And what Lord Marvolo does instead, though, is he walks over and he watches a deer slowly die. And his expression is one of sort of neutrality, uh, but they focus on basically his eyes. And instantly in that first scene, we realize, or we should realize, that Lorne Marvolo is a predator. And um, so uh, Lorne Malvo is played by Billy Bob Thornton. Yes. Um, and uh, his rendition of this right out of the gate is absolutely fantastic. It's, yeah, it's um, It's chilling. It is, you know, it's, I, I don't want to talk too much about, you know, the actual show Fargo. And I, I, I want you to get on with your examples. Um, but I think the guy that runs out of the trunk is like um, naked. Yes, uh, he's in he's, his underwear. He's in his underwear and he's running across, you know, the um, uh, frozen, you know, field. frozen barren field in, in the snow. Um, Malvo knows he's not going to live. Yeah, he instantly right? knows this guy so, has no survival skills whatsoever. So he, our first so, so, so really, yeah, so really he makes like that cold calculated decision that you're talking about, which is, um, you know, do I run after this guy and expend energy uh, or do I do something pleasurable? Yeah. And, and it's, there's no, uh, there's no text in the scene. It is entirely visual, uh, but you understand exactly what this character is about. Yeah, no, they do an excellent job deploying the character right off the bat. And then they carry through this theme in a number of really interesting ways. So, um, as the show develops, there's a whole bunch of kind of, there's subtler signs and there's some very big signs. So one thing is that at one point, uh, the character ends up shooting up a car and he writes a W in it for Wolf, right? He marks his territory, essentially. So that's Malvo who's shooting. Malvo who right. shoots. Um, Malvo also at one point has to go to an arms dealer to get supplies to carry out his, well, his his killings basically, yeah, right? Yeah. His, his assignments. Um, and that's kind of the point is assignments is a very important word. Um, and in the background, you actually see two wolves fighting in the forest. On television, right? Yeah. There's a television screen that kind of lets us flicker over us. And so there's a lot of effort to actually go into play to actually give us a taste of how this character might be related to a wolf. The more interesting, I think, kind of component, though, is that um, what Marvel says. He has these really fantastic lines. Yeah, he, he does. Yeah. And But the point of the lines is they actually give us an insight into this inversion that the wolf becomes integrated into the social structure of society. So one thing that he actually says, and he goes out of his way to kind of have this long discussion about, you have any idea why the Romans murdered St. Sebastian, right? He asks this question to this guy who identifies as the grocery king or whatever, right? Who's a religious figure. And, you know, the supermarket king, which is the guy's name, says, yeah, I, I don't I don't really know, right? Like, I, I've got no idea. They're, you know, they're ignorant, so on and so forth. He gives kind of a very um, theological answer. And Marvel says, you know what, I think it's actually because, you know, Rome, the Roman Empire, was a nation founded by wolves. Whoa. And he says, you know, because he's talking about Romulus and Remus, who are nursed by a she-wolf, right? So basically, it's a nation of wolves, in Marvel's own kind of words. And the idea there, of course, being that far from the wolf being outside of civilization, the wolf is actually the founding pillar of civilization. Yeah, right in the center of it, yeah. At the very beginning. Um. The other kind of theme that comes up is we're given an understanding of uh, he basically has the role of playing a minister, which essentially is a very elaborate way of saying, or a very simple way, perhaps is a better way to put it, but a, a compelling way to tell us that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. In sheep's clothing, yeah. Right, yeah. it's quite nicely done. Yeah. And he ends up actually playing that exact part because he gets arrested 
as a minister and he basically plays the part of being a sheep. He yeah, yeah. cries, he's scared, yeah, he yeah. says that he's going to have a heart attack and he does all these things to essentially escape escape the law in yeah. this kind of one instance. So essentially there's a lot of effort that goes into giving us an understanding of this character as a wolf. And I, I, I'd finish off actually, well, we will in a second, that his death actually is the perfect characterization of that. Hmm. Um, but before that, the other really interesting component of this character is that we learn that essentially, initially we think he's just a predator. Right, totally, totally yeah. loose, yeah. acting on his own free agency and doing whatever he likes. And I think there might be a component in that in terms of how he behaves. I mean, he definitely seems to behave how he kind of, how he likes to. But there's one very fascinating scene where we actually realize that he is connected to a larger commercial and industrial structure. And it's, it's almost passing. But essentially, it turns out that he is assigned. He's given these assignments. He has to check in. He has to call back to report on the assignments that he carries out. And basically his, his reports go to an individual in a room with a whole bunch of rotary phones. I think the rotary phones in the back. I believe so. Yeah, believe so. Yeah. And, but the room is in the back of a real estate store. Yeah. Real estate office. Or, real estate yeah. office. And we have this very interesting connection between sort of the front of capitalism and thinking too that it's I think that it's a real estate store is not incidental we as, we associate the home as a domestic sphere right as a site of sort of pacification as a site that's exactly the opposite of the wolf and right, yet yeah. in the back room you have these individuals who on a daily basis are hiring out probably hundreds of wolves to carry out all these very important tasks and these tasks are very violent but, right. and very calculated Right, and we have this kind of duality between, on the one hand, the very pleasant face—I mean, the most possible sort of domestic pleasant face of capitalism—and in the back room, uh, construction of actually violence, dispossession, and and, and basically power. And um, you know, throughout the three seasons uh, of Fargo, uh, they really hit home on the idea of a front, uh, money laundering, or um, these kind of assassinators for hire. Uh, it's a common theme throughout Fargo, uh, as well as the common theme of the wolf. So season three, you know, picks up almost exactly the same kind of dimension of a wolf uh, who's living in the center of society, who incidentally, again, seems to be connected to this bigger structure, seems to be for hire, is operating a front, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so this is this kind of long standing theme of basically the the reality of capitalism. And I think this is a really important point that essentially if we actually read kind of Marxist theory on capitalism, you know, the fundamental feature of capitalism is taking what isn't yours. Yeah, well, that, it, that is basically, that is the core. Where's pillar. your patio furniture, man? <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, we we do that in terms of, I mean, you think about these examples, taking what is in yours, well, you take land, right? You dispossess yeah. people. Yeah. And yeah, on yeah. a more daily basis, you take the value of labor that you didn't pay for, right? That's the sort of essential crux of it. And so if you think about a character like a wolf, kill or be killed, take or be taken, right? That's, I think is a really important construction of trying to get us to think about how these characters aren't outside civilization at all. They might be the people who are CEOs of large banks, they might be the people who run correctional facilities. These are individuals who are act personalities and types who are actually necessary for the function of capital society. They're heavily integrated. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we could draw a parallel to the shark. Uh, the shark uh, seems to be a figure that comes up uh, when we talk about 
the kind of the high rollers in the capitalist marketplace. Uh, but I think uh, we could uh, yeah, so use, another, use the word uh, a wolf in the same sort of way, right? Uh, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely probably quite right about that. Um, so there's a few nice kind of other hits here. Um, so Mal- Malvo's uh, kind of cr- most dynamic interactions are with a character named Lester Nygaard. And that's important in the sense that Nygaard actually can relatively translate to homesteader. So oh, wasn't that also a brand of... Um... I think it was, was it ladies' underwear or <laughs> Nygaard? Or sounds, maybe like stockings? Or... Stock, I think, are those nylons? No, maybe Nygaard is a type of nylon. I, I I think it is. I think it's a type of nylon. That's very strange, but possible. I don't know. But Maybe, I'm, maybe, maybe I shouldn't comment on that. But you have this really interesting relationship between the wolf, right? Who's someone who's constructed as a wolf very actively and the homesteader, right? And again, that's a, a very, that's a rendition of a very old theme. That's basically the relationship of the wolf to the pigs, the three little pigs who go out and they clear land and they build houses and they are, they are essentially colonial homesteaders. And so the fact that you put those two characters together is quite important. And ultimately what's also quite important is that the character development of Lester Nygar is actually that he becomes a bit wolf-like himself, right? Yeah, he ends up committing a murder. He ends up committing a murder. He ends up sort of kind of seemingly taking over like an insurance company in sort of a strange way. Like he ends up doing some very yeah. odd things. He, um, he, like he has this like, so he kills his wife. Yeah. And then he has this newfound sexuality uh, in this small acumen. town. He has some sort of business acumen as well. He seems... Of- Exudes self confidence, apparently. Yeah, but he uh, he's an insurance guy who I don't know for all intents and purposes uh, would never lead the life that he ends up living after killing his wife. Yeah, that's basically that that element for is yeah. is involved. Um, and so you have, and I guess that's kind of the interesting is that one of the downfalls of of Malvo is that he ends up actually being caught by a hunting trap. So for viewers who want yeah. to watch them, there's a lot of spoilers in this, but essentially he gets snagged in a hunting trap and that's, he gets, catches his leg and that actually eventually leads to his, his death. But what's fascinating about it is that he actually gives us this, uh, this final glimpse uh, when he dies, which is also partially a smile, partially a glimpse. And there's actually an element there that of course the snarl and a smile are the same mm, for yeah. a canine creature and apes smile too when they're threatened. And so there's kind of this, and he's mentioned both those things throughout his sort of life on the show, both okay. that were ultimately just apes deep down inside. Right, right. His belief, and that also, also he's constructed as a wolf. And so you have those two things coming together to kind of suggest, uh, I guess, this relationship between the wolf and the human being, right? That we can be both Yeah, and I mean, you know, his character has these kind of um, primal instincts uh, at, at, that are heavily in the forefront of how his uh, character is constructed. Um, you know, the the quick uh, quick to make a decision, cold calculative that we've talked about. But then also when he is out in the you know in the scene in a cabin, he just kind of always knows what what to do. Like he knows how to tie the knots. He knows how to drive the cars. He knows how to shoot any gun. He knows you know these very kind of you know what we would call hyper masculine yeah. sort of instincts. Yeah, and again, sort of this, I think, too, sort of a fetishization of this cold, calculated element as well that also is, uh, in some cases, taken to be a masculine trait, right? Which makes the scene uh, when he's in another persona, so the same character, uh, Malvo, but in a, leading another life, 
where now all of a sudden uh, was he is he a, a dentist? <laughs> he's a dentist. So he's yeah. a, he's this uh, apparently very famous dentist. Uh, he's living in a mansion. He has like this model kind of wife, this trophy wife. Uh, they're ho- holding a house party. And they're having some wine, and she takes them into the kitchen. Do you do you know the scene yeah, that I'm talking he, about? Yeah, he keeps saying aces or something. Aces. Ridiculous. Yeah, he just keeps saying aces. And she says something along the lines of, uh, "You know, later tonight, I'm going to put my my thumb in your butthole." And he <laughs> just looks at her and says, "Aces." Yeah, it's really weird. It's it's extremely weird. <laughs> it's really quite strange. <laughs> yeah, um, there is actually, you know what? And I think maybe to demonstrate that um, that cold, calculated. Uh, precision and sort of knowing how to handle every scene in every situation that makes him kind of this interesting predator. There's a very good scene we should maybe just listen to. Yeah, okay, let's play it. Yeah, I'm Lieutenant Schmidt. This is Bill Oswald, Chief over Bemidji. Yeah, Frank Peterson. I'm the minister up in Baudette. Go Bears. Minister. Yeah, Baudette Lutheran. Uh, six years now. Frank Peterson for that Aberdeen. So, you know, I, I'm not used to having a firearm stuck in my face, which I know the Lord tests you in all kinds of ways, but uh, who, partner, that's a heart stopper. Cut the shit. You were pulled over Tuesday night driving a stolen car. No, sir. I think I'd remember that. Plus, Tuesday's bingo night at the church. We had a full house. Uh, Florence Night Garden won the entire pot, if I'm not mistaken. And we can check on that. Oh, sure, yes, sir. Uh, you could call Florence herself, uh, or Jim Avery. He's our alderman. <clears throat> Deputy Grimley. Oh, oh, that's the fella. Deputy Grimley uh, pulled his pistol, pointed it right at me, thought I was going to have a heart attack. But, you know, after he told me about those homicides over Bemidji, I, I thought, Frank, I mean, you can't blame the guy for being a little jumpy, horror show like that. That son of a bitch. So you're saying you weren't in Bemidji last week. If I show your picture around, no one would recognize you. Me, no, sir. I have a cousin lived in Bemidji back in the 90s, out near Leech Lake, but uh, he moved to Anchorage in 03. I said... What, Minnesota's not cold enough for you? <laughs> we had a good laugh about that. Also, you're saying you weren't pulled over for speeding. No, sir. I'm a cautious driver by nature, on account of my eyesight. Glaucoma, they say it is. Only in the one eye, but you can't be too careful. That's what I tell my parishioners. Deputy Grimley. Forgiveness. That's the heart of the good book. Turn the other cheek. Second chances. Amen. So, no, I don't hold a grudge against the deputy. Though I'm lucky I had my nitroglycerin pills with me, I tell you, oof da. Okay, well, sit tight. We're gonna make some calls, check your story. You just, just pick a name out of the phone book. Everybody up there knows me. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty good little clip in terms yeah, of... Yeah, I mean, it really shows this cold calculating... Yeah, and this ability yeah. to... I mean, the, the underlying point, of course, is that, you know, he lies for the purposes of survival, right? Which is, again, yeah. Yeah. Um, taken to be a trait of sort of the so- sociopath or psychopath, right? So, again, we see this kind of touching upon this type of being, this asocial being who, again, is integrated into kind of the social structure in these really bizarre <laughs> and, ways. And, you know... Um, 
I know, I know we, we got to move on to, to the next point, uh, but just to kind of tie it into the first thing that you were talking about, uh, the notion that this wolf um, doesn't really care about the state structures, right? Like he doesn't really give a shit that the guy is a police officer, uh, doesn't really care uh, for authority figures or whatever, um, you know, kind of relates a little bit about how the colonial state needed to swiftly move in and show their superiority, probably for a fear uh, that their authority would be questioned or undermined or not respected, right? Yeah, and I think this is this goes back to this initial ambiguity, I think, between the relationship of the sovereign to the wolf. And that ambi- ambiguity comes from the point that, of course, um, sovereigns have this role of banishing wolves, right? But they also have a role of releasing them. And that's the other point right, is that you yeah. just kind of hit on that point is that one of the, I think, most binding elements of a social structure, and it's actually something that Hobbes, even though he doesn't quite catch this way in which the wolf has a functional power, um, Hobbes touches upon is that essentially fear. The, the currency of most states, for the most part, uh, obviously there's a whole series of things that get delivered that are very good, but in terms of the existential existence of a state, it requires fear. Mm. And so a wolf actually has a very powerful role in that. So we, on the one hand, both set out so-called manhunts, which hunt down wolves. But we also have the ability to make a wolf very visible, right? To have the average citizen fearful of a wolf, right? Even if they don't exist. And I think that's the other point, so they might not really exist in the way that we think at all. Mm. They might have a mythical stature, but nonetheless, the presence of the wolf is incredibly important. It's important in the sense of binding colonial relations and stamping out basically stamping out indigenous people and also stamping right, out physical right, wolves yeah, yeah, as yeah. threats. It's also very important in terms of this this possibility. And I'm not saying that it doesn't exist because it does, but also sort of as a an animating figure that there are these lone wolves who, given the opportunity, will just cause chaos, destruction, and death. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's- Okay, a, moving on. Moving on. There's kind of one, there's a loop here too. And it's yeah. a loop that actually takes yeah. us into our third podcast the third episode. Um, and it's this, is that we actually started our story uh, with uh, Swift Runner. And yep. that was kind of our, our, our initial point that uh, ultimately he was codified as a wolf. But the other story here too about Swift Runner, and it's a story that I think is being played out, is that he had this he had this really interesting line. Sorry, I'll bring this up. He had this really interesting line when he was finally apprehended. So when he was tried, he confessed. Completely confessed that he'd actually he'd murdered his wife and he'd murdered he'd murdered oh, five wow, five really? kids his five children he killed them and ate them he murdered he, he totally said that he said yeah I did that that happened uh, okay um, but he also said and this is the most bizarre line I think and it has these all huge historical dimensions and we can we can read it in a lot of ways and I don't want to be taken as an apologist in terms of murdering one's family and eating them. Right, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. But um, he says I didn't kill anybody else's children I only killed my own. And he's saying oh. this to the Northwest Mounted Police. And so on the one hand, there's, there's an obvious element here, and it is a longstanding feature of patriarchal power. Right. Right? So this is actually the right to dispose of one's children and slaves was actually a form of power assigned to the Roman patriarch. Here we are. We're back at Romans again. Yeah. yeah. But um, ultimately, that was actually a form of power ascribed to them, that they could, they could murder their own children. So there's, on the one hand, sort of this bizarre kind of mentioning of that longstanding power. And we'll see that that power is something that, that perversion of power, right, is something that actually plays itself up in a lot of interesting ways that gets kind of connected back to the wolf 
as, as, as actually a very powerful theme in contemporary society uh, in a number of ways. The other part of it too is to read is ultimately he's talking to colonial agents. So he could also be making the claim that he killed his own children while colonial agents during a famine that rocked Treaty 6 and Treaty 7 yeah. had killed uh, thousands. Thousands, yeah. Right. And I think the claim also has to do with the uh, patriarchal ownership over women, children. Oh, this is exactly uh, the point. That is kind of sustained regardless of um, the status of a white man or a Cree man. So it's speaking, it's it's almost the attempt of, um, you know, a Cree man to reach out and speak the language of a white man, which is to say, well, I had ownership of some of them, right? <laughs> and like, you know, that's messed up for its own yeah, reasons. And it has an entire like history and discourse that I think, you know, I'm going to recognize is there. Um, but as it relates to like the, the notion of a wolf and a psychopath, and those sorts of things, well, and you I know, think... the, that there's something there about ownership, uh, over, right. Like territory, for example. Yeah, there's definitely that, I think that, that component for sure, in terms of the element of ownership, the speaking the language of ownership is an, is an interesting idea. Um, and the other thing too, that it does tell us is that there is something about, there is a, a theme and it's a theme that I think we're exploring a lot and we'll get into this in this sort of podcast on the fatherland in terms of patriarchal anxiety, but one component of the patriarch is just complete disaster. It becomes a cannibalizing character, right? And I think that's also quite literally a cannibalizing yeah, character yeah, yeah. with Swift Runner, but also in media. And there's kind of a nice crossover here between the character, uh, the patriarch as wolf and the patriarch as self-cannibalizing. And it actually comes, it's played out quite nicely by Kubrick in The Shining. Oh, so there's a clip we could probably watch. Oh yeah, let's watch that. that clip. Okay, let's okay. do it. Mouse, come out wherever you are.
what you just heard was one of the more kind of iconic themes in in The Shining. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by Kubrick, and uh, ultimately uh, Jack Torrance uh, has completely lost it by this point, right? And is hacking his way through the door, and as he does so, imitates the the language of the big bad wolf. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that this is actually there's a number of elements here that are quite fascinating in the sense that Kubrick throughout this film does a number of things to deploy uh, Jack Torrance as a as a bestial character, as a character that has uh, as somewhat of a beast. And not necessarily in the yeah. same calculating way as a wolf or in, in any sense, but for instance, there's a few scenes where he has this kind of vacant stare, yeah. his mouth is agape, and it's sort yeah. of almost bull-like. And there's also, uh, this is a very good documentary on this film, uh, Room 237. Yep. Uh, also shows that there's a nice positioning between uh, Jack Nicholson and a picture of a minotaur at various moments. Yes. And the minotaur, yeah. of course, is that iconic form of perverted, ultimately, sovereign power, right? And in Minos, essentially, the, the mm. minotaur in the labyrinth is, is the offspring of, of the king and so on and so forth. But the idea here is that there is a... Pre, there's a kind of a convergence between our notion of the big bad wolf, uh, our notion of a patriarch that becomes destabilized and ultimately consuming of their own family, right? And we think about this in a lot of ways. We could think about this in terms of the actual literal act of consumption, literal act of murder, which is what Kubrick points to. But there's also ways in which essentially the patriarch becomes a figure that destroys the family. The same kind of theme actually carries its way out um, in Breaking Bad, Right. Ultimately, defensive ownership, defensive vision uh, leads Walter White to destroy his family structure, right? There's right, an actual yeah. narrative in there. Yeah. And so this leads us into, I think, our third podcast. And it's it's a very, it's an interesting area to kind of cover, but it's, where we're going to go next week is we're going to actually try to think about patriarchal anxiety is one way to, is one way to put it. And I think that we're actually at a moment of sort of these very contradictory manifestations of patriarchal power. Um, on the one hand, we have the election of Donald Trump, who in, in, is a caricature of patriarchal power. We also have a number of points where this power is critiqued and represented. And so we're going to do sort of an exploration through media, but we're also going to look at why it becomes important at different historical moments uh, that patriarchy becomes a site of anxiety, uh, as it, should, as it should be, but also a site of intense scrutiny in terms of its relationship to authoritarian power. Aaron, uh, thank you for joining us on the show again. Uh, extremely insightful discussion that you had. Uh, thank you, uh, you know, from your research uh, from Alberta to medieval discourses of banishment and the wolf uh, to then how there is an inversion in the codifi codification of it. Uh, Fargo, Dexter, The Shining, uh, a little bit of Breaking Bad. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Thank you so much. Um, if you have questions, concerns, comments, or considerations for either Aaron or myself, you can research on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play, we're on your podcatcher of choice. Again, thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And I uh, sincerely look forward to the next episode on Fatherland. Thanks. See you all gone soon.
Hey everyone, welcome back. Uh, it's Phil here. Uh, Aaron stuck around with me, and we have some recommendations for you. Uh, Aaron, uh, what do you have for us uh, this week? Sure. Uh, so this week, I thought I'd give a recommendation for a board game. That's... Love, love my board games. Yeah, this is this is a really good uh, cooperative board game with a potential trader mechanic built in. Uh, okay. The game is called uh, Dead of Winter. It's nice crossroads yep. game. Um, the designers are uh, Jonathan Gilmore and Isaac Vega, uh, and the game essentially is a a sur- it's got an element of survival tinged to it. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, but you're basically a colony of survivors in a zombie apocalypse. Uh, it's good with more. You can play it with two people, I believe, but it's good with multiple players. Yeah, like the trader mechanic uh, from doesn't, experience doesn't, doesn't work. Doesn't work with two. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So you want probably at least four people to play. I think okay. is a good number. Um, and the way it works is you each have you have different um, survivors. Uh, in your hand that you can play each round and they'll have different sort of skills and abilities uh, that you can utilize. Some of them might be really fast, some of them might be really good shots, some of them might be strong and basically your objective is to fulfill a broader mission. So each time you play the game you draw a big kind of overarching mission plan that you have to carry out. But you as a player will also have an individual mission, which could be, oh. you know, it could be like gathering X number of supplies. It could be having so many survivors. Um, and it is possible that you might actually end up with a mission that involves harming or just like taking out other players and destroying the colony, right? So that's the wow. trader, okay. trader mechanic. Uh, it's a really good, it's a really fun game. Uh, it's a game that has a nice mixture of storytelling in it. Um, it's got an action point system, so you kind of have to think nice, about how nice. you want to play each turn. Um, and card management, too, right? So you're yep. picking up different items and cards, and you got to think about the best way to kind of play those as it goes out. And there's a little bit of an element of exploring, too, because you basically have to explore different sites around the colony for supplies and so that's kind of the biggest mechanic of the game is that to keep the colony going to keep it fed to keep it warm to solve various crises that might come up in a game you have to sort of um, scavenge from these other buildings that are close by and that actually leads to probably the neatest part i think is one of the neatest part of these games is that every round you play there's a crisis and the crisis could be a whole, it could be that you've run out of fuel, for instance. Right, okay. Yeah. And so as a team, you need to resolve the crisis. And oh, if, neat. Okay. If you don't yep. resolve it, uh, what generally happens is your panic goes up. And if you get too many panic points, or sorry, it's not panic, it's like more, more morale. Your morale goes down. And you lose morale too much, you, you fail. Yeah. Or you also end up with more zombies on the board. So basically you need to try to resolve the crisis. And the way you do it is you put in... Say you are running low on fuel, so you have to get seven fuel cards. Well, each player has to, at the end of the round, has an opportunity to put cards towards resolving the crisis. But they put their cards face down and you shuffle it. So, so you don't know you don't which know who's, player is playing which cards. You don't know who's played oh, what. And okay. so you might fail the crisis and that sucks. And then the added, the added reality is that someone decided to screw you over in the group. So right, right, right. it's really good at kind of creating the suspicion and also having kind of a neat kind of role-playing element. So. Um, in your experience, how, how long does it take to play a game? Uh, you should probably put a good amount of time aside for the first playthrough. Um, yep. just getting people sort of to understand the action point system takes, takes a lot of time. I'd say if you're playing with four people, 
it wouldn't be unreasonable to put aside two and a half hours. Two and a half, okay. For the first play, and then yep. maybe more closer to two on the second. But it also depends. It can end really fast if things go wrong. Yeah. I mean, um, just from my experience playing co-op games, the ones that have the more extended rules, like uh, Dead of Winter, uh, one of my favorite, Robinson Crusoe, it does take a while to, to play through the games. Just multiple yeah, exactly. rounds, multiple things going on, um, storytelling, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And uh, who puts out that game? Uh, so that game is available uh, from a number of different publishers, but I have my version from Plaid Hat. Uh, so that might be the Canadian distributor. I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah. And then there's also Arclight. So those are the, I think the top kind of two in the North, maybe in the North American yeah, market. Probably. But, yeah. yeah. So look those up, but there's, there's actually, it's one of those games that seems to have a lot of publishers. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, my recommendation for this week, uh, is a little different. Uh, I'm actually going to recommend, uh, a podcast kind of community. Uh, I think it's, I think that's the right, the right kind of term. Um, I encountered them on Twitter, uh, and they go, uh, it kind of goes by the hashtag, uh, Pottern family. Uh, but they also have a Facebook group and a Facebook page and that kind of stuff. Um, basically what it is, is, uh, you know, a community of independent podcasters who support each other, uh, offer advice, um, promote each other. And over the last few weeks, we've been engaging with them on our Twitter and our Facebook, and they've been really great to nice. us. Um, so lots of, uh, you know, other Canadian podcasts, uh, have, uh, liked us, friended us, retweeted our stuff, uh, you know, got in contact with us, offered us some really good, uh, feedback. Um, so yeah, it's the hashtag Pottern family, uh, for any other podcasters out there looking, uh, to get noticed or, you know, uh, I've seen just questions on the forums as well. Um, you know, an example, I have X number of followers after four months of podcasting. Is this normal? Uh, should I be doing something different? Um, we're going to throw up a question, uh, very soon, a technical question, uh, about some sound glitches that we had on our last episode. Right. Um, so, you know, well, sounds like a great network. It, it, you know, it's, it's new, uh, you know, this whole podcasting business to us, but so when we find a, a, a community that is inviting, uh, it's fun. It's fun to be involved in, in this, uh, collaborative, in this collaborative sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Like we help each other out. And what, what I find really interesting on Potter and family anyway, the podcasts are very varied in their topics. So you have podcasts that cover movies, you have podcasts that cover current affairs, you have horror story podcasts, uh, campfire kind yeah. of story podcasts. You have us, uh, you have lots of sports, uh, any sport you can think of hockey, basketball, baseball, wrestling. Uh, there's outdoor living, there's uh, yoga, there's, uh, you know, podcasting has really, uh, become a thing. Uh, anybody can do it. Mm. Uh, lots of people do it. Uh, you know, I, I, I always like, uh, hearing the everyday man story or the everyday kind of person story. And I think podcasting is a f fantastic medium to do that. And, um, anyway, cool. Potter and family allows you to join that community. Check that out. Yeah. Um, so speaking of communities, you can join our little micro community on, uh, social media. Uh, and we are on Twitter at the underscore S I M underscore P O D. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google play or your podcatcher of choice. Again, thank you, Aaron, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And see you all next time. Get back now. Make your brain take some facts. Yeah. Make your hands get clapped out. Uh.